Dr. Stephen Reichbeck, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So I understand you've been running a ketamine clinic in Sarasota for the past seven years. And um, and ketamine is a, a really intriguing, interesting kind of a treatment. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what you do and, and what kinds of conditions you're able to treat with ketamine? Sure. So we've, we've been here about seven years or so treating patients with intravenous ketamine. It's really two subsets of patients. The first are patients with certain mood disorders, um, more specifically patients who have been dealing with significant depression, anxiety disorders. Very often uh, they've been diagnosed with PTSD or there's some, some sort of trauma in their history that might not have officially been diagnosed as PTSD. Uh, they have typically been on medications uh, for a number of years that either haven't worked or haven't worked for any significant period of time. The patients just don't tolerate side effects and um, they are still struggling with whatever the symptoms of their depression, anxiety disorders are. Um, and ketamine has been a, a very effective alternative treatment for many of them. Um, it works by a completely different mechanism of action than any of the uh, oral medications, the SSRIs, mood stabilizers and such. Um, so that's really one subset of patients. And <clears throat> the second set of patients, subset of patients that we're treating are patients with certain chronic neuropathic pain syndromes. Uh, and when I say chronic pain syndromes, uh, we're talking more about conditions that involve central pain uh, as opposed to peripheral type neuropathic pain. Okay. And do you have a um, a background in either psychiatry or anesthesia or pain management? Like what's your background before uh, using ketamine or treating with ketamine? Well, I've been using ketamine for about 30 years. I'm an anesthesiologist and was a practicing anesthesiologist in New York. Uh, so very familiar with ketamine for many purposes. Uh, ketamine itself has been around for about 50 or so years. It was invented as an anesthetic and probably over the last 15, 20 years has been researched quite extensively and studied uh, for its very powerful antidepressant effects. So that's, that's the first thing. Second thing is we've been treating patients uh, with intravenous ketamine, completely different protocol to treat many of these uh, chronic pain uh, conditions. The condition that's been studied most extensively is a condition called CRPS or complex regional pain syndrome which also used to be referred to as RSD or reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Um, that condition is a horrible, horrible uh, condition that a certain subset of patients uh, can, can get. And very often ketamine is the, only, is the only thing that will help them to any significant degree uh, as far as their pain and function. Okay, and that's, yeah, RSD or uh, the complex regional pain syndrome, um, fits in an interesting category of conditions, which at, at some point in history, uh, it, they were difficult to, to prove that a patient had them and, and maybe doctors didn't believe their patient was, was being honest, but, you know, maybe they thought they were malingering or, or being okay. hysterical. Uh, you know, there's that one. And then there's also um, fibromyalgia. Uh, and then more recently, there's um, patients who are going through um, uh, protracted benzodiazepine withdrawal and maybe withdraw from other uh, uh, psychiatric drugs or, uh, you know, the antidepressants and things like that. And, and sometimes Absolutely. in these protracted withdrawal syndromes, patients can, will complain about these nonspecific 
severe pains, you know, they may have pelvic pain, headaches, chest pain, um, you know, just pain and, and or maybe just a general feeling of pain uh, or akathisia where they just can't stop moving and they just feel like they want to rip their skin off and they just feel this horrible pain and hopelessness and it can, it can make them suicidal. Uh, is that, have you worked with patients like that? Have you seen any uh, positive results absolutely, with ketamine? Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, the majority of patients that we treat, um, they've been on medication for a long period of time. Many times, as you alluded to, SSRIs, narcotic, benzodiazepines. Um, as a result, um, you know, these, these kinds of medications are extremely difficult to, uh, to wean off of um, and need to be done extremely slowly um, where patients start to develop you know, severe side effects or severe uh, withdrawal symptoms from them. And, and the withdrawal can manifest in, in numerous, numerous ways, as you alluded to um, pain, you know, vague pain or pain that doesn't make sense. And um, the conditions, a lot of the conditions that we treat for pain, you know, patients have been to, uh, to neurologists and pain management doctors, and they've been tried on, you know, a million different medications and different different nerve blocks and treatments. And sometimes there's no explanation for, for the pain that they're, they're describing or that they're experiencing. And they're sort of, you know, the doctors get frustrated and they don't understand the patients. The patients don't understand why the doctors can't, you know, do more to, to try to figure out what's going on. Um, and whether patients are referred to us or they find out about this option sort of on their own, um, very often, um, Ketamine can be an extremely valuable tool. When I say central pain uh, compared to peripheral pain, well, central pain is really pain that, that emanates from the central nervous system, the spinal cord and the brain. And so when patients come or they're referred to us and you know, they've had a million MRIs, they've had all kinds of lab work, nerve studies, muscle biopsies, um, and, and, and the pain is still way out of proportion then anything that you can sort of pinpoint or, or identify, a lot of times that pain that's above and beyond is, is what we refer to as central pain. And that's the kind of pain that ketamine can be extremely, extremely effective in treating. Oftentimes patients that we see, um, you know, the, there's, there's really a, a very fine line between dealing with chronic pain and, and mood disorders. Those pathways are very closely linked and uh, when I speak to a patient initially and they, you know, I ask them, what is the primary issue? Is it, you know, your migraine headaches or is, is it this abdominal pain that nobody's been able to identify or this back pain or, or that kind of thing? Uh, sometimes they can't even tell me what is the more pressing issue, which happened first? What, you know, if we could help one, will it help with the other? Um, and very often we'll, we'll approach it from one aspect or the other or the other because the protocols are completely different. And, you know, if the primary issue is, is a chronic pain issue and they, and they describe that they've been on antidepressants for a while, they can't remember if it's before the pain started, after the pain started, um, we will get some indication very often um, if they come in for a chronic pain issue, many times the depression lifts, the anxiety level goes down, they start sleeping again, and vice versa. So um, though the protocols are different, we can get a lot of information with either protocol in trying to figure out if it will help 
the less the less urgent issue. Okay, and uh, I, I was curious. I think what what you do, I think, is is ketamine infusion, which would be giving uh, like a an IV ketamine, ketamine through a uh, intravenous line. But how, That's how does correct. that? And oh, thank you. And how how does that differ from this new drug? Uh, like you know, S-ketamine, uh, Spiriva, the the thing that psychiatrists can now give the FDA-approved sure. nasal spray. Is it a sure. different drug, or are they similar? Uh, it, they're similar, but completely different. Really, um, S-ketamine or Spirivato uh, that you mentioned. Um, there's two isomers to a ketamine molecule. There's an R isomer and an S uh, isomer, and the S isomer is the um, is really the Spravato or the S-ketamine. Um, S-ketamine was, was uh, produced or manufactured uh, because it was able to be FDA approved. Ketamine itself has been around such a long time. It's been off patent for, for you know, 20, 30, 40 years at this point. So um, in order for, for a medication to be FDA approved, it's got to go through extensive testing and research and um, studies over a number of years with long-term outcomes. And there was no money really to be made from pharmaceutical companies to finance a lot of these studies because there was no, there was no uh, golden ticket at the end of, of getting FDA approval for, for ketamine since it's been off-label. Pretty much any, any pharmaceutical company can produce it at this point. So they came up with S-ketamine, uh, which is a half, half the molecule of ketamine, and they came up with a nasal spray and a protocol um, for patients to use uh, as an antidepressant. They're just using S-ketamine at this point as an antidepressant. Um, comparing it to the ketamine that we use intravenously, first of all, the majority of studies that have been done over the last 15 years uh, to treat depression have been done with intravenous ketamine. Intravenous ketamine has, has a lot of advantages, um, mainly we talk about bioavailability and bioavailability is really the actual amount of drug that goes to where it has to go and does what it has to do. When you use a drug intravenously, we know that 100% of it is getting to the area where it has to go to the brain in this instance, let's say. It's not being metabolized in the liver before it gets to the brain. It's not, you're not concerned that it's getting absorbed through the nasal mucosa or the oral mucosa. Um, you know, when you're using a nasal medication or an oral medication or a sublingual medication, you and I could take the same dose, let's say 50 milligrams, um, with other variables involved, you may absorb 60% of that medication. I may absorb 80% and somebody else may absorb 40%. So it's very difficult to say exactly what dose a patient is either responding at or not responding at. With intravenous ketamine, if a patient comes in, I give them 50 milligrams through an intravenous. I know that 50 milligrams precisely is going where it has to go. If a patient doesn't respond at 50 milligrams, there's really no ceiling uh, as to what dose we can go to to try to elicit a positive response in the patient. If I decide to go to 70 or 80 milligrams and they respond, I know that 70, 80 milligrams precisely is, is exactly what, what dose they responded at. And there's some consistency individual patients as to what dose they will respond at uh, on a pretty consistent basis once we get there. Um, second thing is when you use a nasal medication or oral medication, 
Um, there are there are psychomimetic effects that these medications can cause. They're, they're mind-altering drugs, even at low doses, sub-anesthetic doses, which is how we are using them. Um, and patients can get uncomfortable with that dissociation. And so once you use a medication orally or nasally, you're sort of married to that medication until it until it you know is metabolized and wears off and, and becomes lesser. Uh, a lesser concentration in your blood. When we're using intravenous ketamine infusions, um, we keep a very close eye on patients and you know, they're able to talk and communicate. And if they describe uncomfortable feelings with the dissociation or something that's scary, it's a very simple fix. We turn the infusion off for, for a couple of minutes or we slow it down, we give a medication that uh, acts as a uh, an amnestic so that it kind of calms them down, takes away that anxiety. Uh, and within a couple of minutes, the medication is metabolized and they're back to being grounded uh, to where they're at a comfortable point, at which point we can restart the infusion at a slower rate so they're not getting such an intense uh, you know, feeling of dissociation with the intravenous method. So I, you know, to me, I'm, I'm sort of biased towards if patients are really struggling and they're trying to figure out if ketamine is something that can be effective for them. You know, for me, I think really the only way to do that effectively, for the most part, is with intravenous infusions. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I was wondering about, you know, there's everybody is so interested now in, in psychedelics and psychedelic therapy, you know, there's psilocybin, MDMA. I began, you know, there's just an explosion of all these different psychedelics that everybody's in a rush to get them approved and be able to use them in, in treatments and they're doing studies. But like you said, ketamine has been around really forever, you know, on the timescale of pharmaceuticals uh, and it's very well known, but would you classify ketamine as a, as a psychedelic? They are, they are actually really um, considered different classes of drugs. Ketamine itself, is in, uh, in the class of drugs as PCP or phencyclidine. Um, it's considered a dissociative. Yes, it's a mind altering drug, um, but it's not more specifically not considered a so-called psychedelic. Are some of the experiences that patients will describe um, similar to, to psychedelic drugs? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, it, it's sort of a, a fine point, fine difference, but they are, technically classified as different different types of drugs. Okay. And when when you when you treat someone, do you get them into that like do they actually get into that state of uh disassociation where they, you know, where they might have like some kind of a, you know, I, I don't know what to say, like an inspired feeling or feel, you know, feeling disassociated from their body and maybe saying like, wow, I'm, you know, maybe seeing life from a different perspective or seeing seeing you know, how, how would you describe like that kind of uh, what, how a person describes coming out of a treatment? Sure. So let me just kind of clarify the, the as far as ketamine goes, and, and this is different than how we understand the psychedelics at this point. And there's a lot of misinformation and, you know, uh, stuff out there that you may read about. Um, as far as ketamine goes at this point in time, what the research behind it has shown is that it's not, it's not so much the experience that patients go through um, that's ultimately responsible for improvement in clinical situation and in, in, in function, uh, lifting of depression and, and, and anxiety. Um, 
ketamine is known to cause physical changes in the brain. It jumpstarts these chemical cascade of events that cause uh, physical changes and uses the brain's ability to sort of reform itself and grow. And uh, what it does is uh, it causes a, a strengthening of the dendritic spines. The dendrites are the connections between the neurons. And in the mood centers of the brain, within an hour or two of receiving a ketamine infusion, these changes start to occur. And from what we understand, that improvement in dendritic uh, spines, lengthening, strengthening, um, improvement of the synapses, which are the, the spaces between the neurons and being able to transmit neurotransmitters uh, more effectively, that we know is, is caused by ketamine at very low sub-anesthetic doses. And what the research has shown is it's these physical changes, these hardwired changes in the brain that are ultimately responsible for improvement in mood and function in a relatively quick period of time. So we may see patients uh, with a dramatic improvement after only one or two infusions. And we, you know, for the most part at this time, we, we attribute that to these physical changes. There are patients who will describe to me that they go through the infusions and they're very comforting and nurturing and transformative. And they have this clarity that they've never experienced before having gone through these infusions. And, you know, I am sure that there is something to that. There, there's no question about it. Um, and so I'm happy to provide that and allow them to go through that, um, that experience. Uh, but for me, it's more just getting this, this certain determined dose of ketamine in that I hope will elicit these physical changes that, that, that I'm most concerned with. We see a large number of patients who have been through extensive, extensive trauma, childhood trauma, the most horrible things you can imagine. And their, their main concern when they come in for ketamine infusions is they don't want to be taken back to those, you know, traumatic, terrifying, scary times, which is certainly possible when you undergo a ketamine infusion. And I reassure them that they don't have to, we don't have to get to that point for this to be effective. And so how do we, how do we, how do we go about treating those patients? Well, if I give you 50 milligrams, 60 milligrams, 100 milligrams of ketamine, whatever the dose is, and I give it to you over one hour, it's going to be a completely different experience than if I were to give it to you over two hours. And so in order to keep patients grounded and, and so that they don't feel any kind of intense dissociation or something that's going to ultimately be scary for them, we tailor the infusion so that, you know, we make it so that they don't dissociate to any significant degree and they can comfortably go through the infusion and feel more or less like they do when they come in that day, you know, without any psychomimetic effect from it. And their response will be a positive one to the same degree that it would be as if they, you know, had a full-blown dissociation and, and, and that kind of thing. Okay. It, it almost seems like, and, and I, don't, I don't know if we know anything about this, um, but is it possible that a person might benefit from a very low dose of ketamine on a regular basis? Like, and I know it wouldn't be practical to go in for an IV infusion every day or every other day, but you know, maybe if you know, a person could take like a, a sublingual, very low dose, like five, 10 milligrams or something daily, is there any possibility that would be beneficial or we just don't know that? Sure. So, so the protocol I follow is 
to do initially six, six infusions, and we try to do them within a two to week, two to three week time frame. Um, for patients who get, my, see, my expectation is that at some point after those six infusions, patients are going to start to sort of regress and slide back with their symptoms. I expect that. I don't expect the majority of patients that we treat, you know, and we keep in touch with pretty much everybody. We have patients that have gone through six infusions and we've never had to see them again. And we've kept in touch and they've done extremely well. The majority of patients do need to come back periodically, especially over the first year. And there seems to be some consistency as far as how long they get a benefit from this for. Um, and so the idea is to try to stay ahead of it and um, figure out how long individual patients will, will benefit from those initial six infusions. Um, to answer your question, for patients that we find uh, that we find only seem to get a three, four, five week uh, benefit or response from the infusions, I will uh, prescribe sublingual ketamine trophies um, for them to use in between infusions. And really, you're not going to have anywhere near the same dose or the same uh, effect from those those lozenges or trophies that you're going to feel during an infusion, uh, but it seems to extend the time frame between infusions that patients need to come in. Um, just by keeping those receptors sort of primed without the psychomimetic effect, it seems to lengthen the amount of time that patients are able to, to benefit from, the, uh, from, the from those infusions. And so I don't generally prescribe it for patients who seem to get two, three, four months of relief through the infusions over the first year. And after the first year, that time frame just seems to get longer and longer until we just basically need, don't need to see those patients anymore. They've done well. Uh, and there's probably some cumulative effect to it. Um, but we use it more so just to lengthen the time that patients uh, are able to get that benefit uh, from these infusions. Okay. And um, now there, there's some... There's been some concern about, uh, you know, negative effects or adverse reactions to ketamine, which, I, you know, and, and, you know, my research on it, you know, just reading up on it, it seems to be one of the safer drugs or safer uh, medications out there. But there is some concern about, uh, I think, damage to the liver, bladder damage, um, increased suicidal ideations, depression. Um, and, and I don't know if, if some of these might be related specifically to S-ketamine. Uh, so I'm not sure if I'm what I'm looking at is specifically about that or ketamine, um, and and just you know so and also I mean have you had issues with people having respiratory depression having to intubate them during treatment or any uh, you know major issues during the procedure? So to answer your question, ketamine is an extremely safe drug. Uh, yes, it's metabolized in the liver um, unless a patient. Uh, has an active liver process going on. They have a flare-up of hepatitis or they're really end-stage cirrhotic where they've got no liver whatsoever to metabolize anything. The sub-anesthetic the, the sub doses that we're using is probably less toxic to the liver than taking two Tylenol, in my opinion. Um, you will hear about uh, a condition known as uh, hemorrhagic cystitis or basically uh, where the bladder, you get a, a holes in the, the lining of the bladder and heavy bleeding. Um, the, we have never seen it. We've never had a patient who's developed hemorrhagic cystitis. The 
people or the, yeah, I mean, the people who develop hemorrhagic cystitis from ketamine are people who have been abusing it super high levels on a daily basis for, for long periods of time. We treat patients with these chronic neuropathic pain syndromes at doses that are 10 to 20 times what they are for mental health. And these patients will come back five, four or five days in a row at super high levels of ketamine. Um, and we have not had any, any issues with anything related to hemorrhagic cystitis or other, other liver, uh, other bladder issues. And so for me, the threshold to try ketamine on patients who are struggling um, at the doses that we're using, you know, unless you have your liver enzymes are, are actively elevated and continuing to go up or, you know, you're completely cirrhotic and I need a, a gastroenterologist to tell me that it's safe to give you, you know, 50 or 60 milligrams of, of ketamine. Um, who do we not give ketamine to? Well, patients who have been diagnosed with psychosis or, you know, delusional or whatever, whatever etiology, uh, and they're actively in a psychotic or delusional state. Or patients who have been diagnosed with bipolar disease and they're in a hypomanic or manic phase, um, we, would, we would avoid ketamine because ketamine is thought even at low doses to potentially worsen those conditions. Um, I would tell you that every patient that we treat needs to be um, treated, actively treated with a mental health care professional. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, but I do, I've been using ketamine for, for obviously over 30 years. And that my skill set is with administering ketamine safely. And we've treated, you know, probably 12 to 1300 patients for mental health issues with ketamine, with intravenous ketamine. Um, and so I've seen quite a bit and I'm very familiar in how patients are responding and if patients are having a negative response to it. And so, you know, it's important to, it's important to stress the fact that patients do need to be plugged into mental health care provider while they're undergoing and even, even more, more, more so once they're starting to feel better from the ketamine treatments, most patients will describe feeling that they're able to benefit more from therapy or counseling um, once they get to a point where they become more receptive to it from the ketamine. Okay, and and uh, oh, just to follow up, I, I I think I threw way too much stuff in that last question. The, do you ever have? Are there any? And and now, if someone were to have uh, an emergency during the procedure, you know, say that someone did need to be intubated for sure. to be put on a ventilator, that's probably rare, probably never happens. But if it were to happen, of course, who, who better to, to be administering it than an anesthesiologist who, who's done that a million times? A hundred percent with that one. Uh, we have, you know, we have all the resuscitative equipment here. Um, we have laryngoscopes and, and the tracheal tubes, LMAs. Um, we have never had to put a, an artificial airway in a patient here. Um, Ketamine itself is extremely hemodynamically stable. You will see bumps, increases in heart rate and, and blood pressure during the course of an infusion oftentimes. Um, there's very little in the way of, of respiratory depression. We're obviously monitoring patients' oxygenation. We have pulse oximetry and you know, blood pressure, uh, monitoring blood pressure and EKG. Um, and so the, the ketamine itself is extremely hemodynamically stable, is extremely um, extremely stable respiratory wise. So 
unless I get very concerned more so with the pain infusions where the doses are higher and patients, you know, if they're obviously on home oxygen or their, their respiratory status to begin with is, is sort of tenuous, we're, we're very careful in, you know, trying to select patients that, that are gonna be higher risk and may not be safe to do here in the office um, as opposed to maybe more in, in a more uh, hospital-based setting uh, to do these infusions. Although we've never had an issue here, uh, to be honest with you, as far as any kind of, any kind of um, decompensation of patients. My concern more so is, uh, is the dissociation and how patients are tolerating the dissociation side effect of the ketamine, more so than the um, respiratory or the hemodynamic majority of times. Okay. And um, there's, I, I read an article a long time ago, and uh, I don't know if this is a, if, if it's used for children, but there was an article about how ketamine might be an ideal uh, anesthetic for uh, children getting emergency room procedures, you know, rather than giving them traditional other kinds of things that ketamine is, is very well tolerated with children. But they said one of the worst side effects that the kids get is uh, uh, nightmares after the, the treatment. I don't know if that's like a, a problem, you know, usually for adults at all. That is, a, that is something that can happen, nightmares, especially going through the course of the infusions. We do hear that probably in about 10 to 15% of patients. Um, it's, not a common, it's not a common occurrence, but it is something that I, I do talk to patients about, you know, before or the, uh, before they undergo the infusions. And there are certain, there are certain ways to minimize, you know, that incidence uh, of, for happening. Um, but again, as you, as you mentioned, ketamine is a wonderful drug for kids. Um, again, because it's hemodynamically stable, very little in the way of, um, very little in the way of respiratory depression. And so, you know, whereas older people, you know, adults, a, get uncomfortable with the dissociation or the experience of, of what ketamine can do even at relatively low doses. Most kids like seeing elephants walking on the walls and different colors and they're not unnerved by it. And so really, you really don't run into the same issue with kids uh, oftentimes that you do, you do with adults. Just, you know, just to kind of put in perspective um, the kinds of doses that we're using to treat these mood disorders I tell patients, you know, if you fall and you dislocate your hip or your shoulder and you need to go to the emergency room and they need to reduce it, they need to put it back in place, they may very well use ketamine, even on an adult, um, to sedate you to, to be able to do that because ketamine itself is, a, is an amazing analgesic. It's, it's stronger than morphine. Um, and again, you're not as concerned about respiratory depression or, or desaturation and dropping blood pressure. And so ketamine would be a good option for a lot of a lot of those types of patients. And the dose of ketamine that they would likely give you would probably be two to three times what you would get initially here over an hour um, for, for an infusion to try to treat a mood disorder. So that kind of puts it in perspective, you know, when patients are concerned, hey, am I going to have a crazy hallucination? Am I going to, is it going to be out of control? Am I going to be terrified? When I present it to them like that, um, it sort of eases their mind and, and puts things in perspective. So um, that's kind of that's kind of the uh, the thought process behind that. 
Okay. And you mentioned comparing it with having an analgesic effect uh, superior to morphine. And, and there, there are some recent articles about ketamine possibly being having opioid-like properties. Is, is that a concern or is that true or an issue at all? Well, that again is one of the reasons that I sort of have a preference for intravenous as opposed to intranasal. So the first binding effect of ketamine when you're using it intranasally is to bind to opioid receptors in the frontal frontal part of the brain. And so that, that's a short-lived effect, but it, it's a real effect. And patients who might have a propensity for, you know, they've, they've had an issue with opioid dependence or opioid addiction before, really have to be careful with, with that, even though it's a short-lived effect and it's not responsible for the longer-term benefit of ketamine, you know, forming those, those new pathways and those physical changes in the brain, um, you do get that, that feeling of euphoria initially, and whether it lasts a couple of minutes or it lasts during the course of the infusion, you know, longer term. Um, we've never had a patient or an issue with a patient becoming um, dependent or, or, or uh, abusing ketamine going through these intravenous infusions. I think the likelihood of dependence or, or becoming addicted more to it more hot, more likely with, with the nasal ketamine. Okay, oh, that's interesting. And and just one final topic. Uh, sure. have, have you seen, um, have, have you treated patients with alcoholism or drug addiction and seen some good results of, of them uh, moving forward towards recovery or, or helping with the recovery with ketamine treatment? Absolutely, but not maybe not for the reason that you're, that you're alluding to. Um, there's very little data out there as far as using ketamine, you know, to get patients off alcohol or, or certain types of drugs. What the ketamine really does is it, it helps to deal with the underlying issues. So if patients are self-medicating and they're, you know, they're, they're using alcohol to help with their depression, anxiety, ability to function or opioids to, you know, in that respect, or they're, they become dependent on opioids. Um, what the ketamine hopefully will do will uh, it'll deal with the the underlying depression or anxiety disorders, which should you know secondarily help patients you know decrease their need to self medicate with those substances. Having said that, I would tell you that you know as you can imagine, the majority of patients that we see have some dependence on, on alcohol or, or other types of drugs that they've been on for a long period of time. And um, almost, you know, more so anecdotally, though there are some small studies out there, um, patients, especially with alcohol type issues, um, going through these infusions um, without even realizing it oftentimes, their, their alcohol intake will, will decrease. And patients who are coming in more so for pain and they've been on high doses of narcotics, it seems like we're able to get their, wean them down off of their narcotics with minimal uh, withdrawal effects going through these ketamine infusions. And part of it may be that, you know, you're helping with their pain level going through the course of, of these infusions. So if they're taking medication only, you know, as needed, it becomes a lot easier for them to, to completely stop that. But also patients who are taking standing orders of, of, of narcotics, um, it seems like you can, we can more rapidly 
clean down uh, to a lower level without having to deal with side effects uh, or, or withdrawal type symptoms from that. And I think that down the road, you know, we're, we're this is the tip of the iceberg in using ketamine and probably other types of similar medications, as you mentioned before. Um, I think the, the down the road, this is gonna be the future of trying to deal with addictions and, and uh, dependency and obviously PTSD and mood disorders and depression and probably pain as well, you know, with, with a lot of these other substances. And, you know, the mechanism of action needs to be researched and studied and who do we do this for and who do we not do it for and what are the protocols? Um, we know that to a large degree with ketamine right now. Um, and so to me, uh, when we first started treating these patients, you know, it was a much more narrow um, criteria as far as picking and choosing which patients, you know, it had to be patients who had been on at least two or three antidepressants and failed them. Um, they had to be labeled really treatment resistant. Um, my threshold at this point, six and a half, seven years later is, is much lower to try to help patients who are struggling um, only because the downside is really so little other than not, not working um, and the potential upside can be quite profound. Um, we have treated, you know, this is the last thing I know I'm throwing a lot out there, but we treated patients who have gone through uh, a rapid detox, rapid opioid detox, and they follow up with us once they go through this rapid detox and they'll come in once a month or once every couple of weeks with infusions. And it seems to be extremely effective uh, in uh, preventing them from falling back into you know, whatever, whatever addictive uh, uh, patterns they had been in before. And so the negative patterns, the re-circuiting or the regrowth of different parts of, uh, of the brain, uh, we don't understand it completely. And certainly it needs to be researched further. But um, from my experience in treating you know, hundreds of patients, uh, there's really something, there really seems to be something to it. Okay, well, that's... Uh... That's, that's incredible. And that's, uh, and that's also a major thing. If there's some way that it can help people with the, the healing process of tapering, you know, tapering, even, even people oh, who sure. have gone, yeah, people have gone through like a year or more of opioid dependence treatment with buprenorphine or Suboxone. And now they're worried about how do I get off of that? Sure. Um, you know, maybe, you know, that tapering process is difficult. So yeah, if, if ketamine treatment infusion can help with the tapering process, that that's incredible. And addiction, trauma, um, how, how can people find you, Dr. Reichbeck, you know, if they're interested in, you know, looking into this treatment? Absolutely. So uh, I can give you the phone number here. It's 941-213-4444. We have a website, findpainrelief.com, with a lot of information, useful information, research, uh, articles, and resources. Um, honestly, I spend half my day talking on the phone with who are just curious about it, prospective patients, family members, if this is something that might help them. And I'm happy to, I'm happy to talk to them, you know, and sort of explain the process, hear their story, and try to figure out if it's something that, that might help them. We're, we're extremely accessible here. Um, and so we're just trying to spread the word and get the word out there that for patients who are really struggling, and there's an, you know, there's there's a real crisis in this country at this point with mental health and and 
you know, the typical medications may be effective 50 to 60% of the time, but what, what's happening with other patients? They need to be, you know, know that there's other options out there, um, other alternatives. When we first started doing this, I would say the patients that were inquiring and that we were treating, it was probably 90 to 95% self-referred patients. At this point, um, over the last few years, it's probably become more 75, 80% referrals from, from you know, psychiatrists and um, counselors, therapists, mental health care providers um, who have seen how effective it's been for, for their really hard to treat patients. And they've sort of let their guard down now and, and you know, they'll call me or they'll have patients call me. And there's, there's a much better um, communication circle now um, with the mental health care providers and they're interested in it and I'm happy to, to, to talk to them and, and describe the process to them uh, as well. Oh, wow. That's, that's great. Uh, Dr. Stephen Reichbeck, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It was, it was nice meeting with you and, uh, and, and speaking with the people out there.